is this irresistible creature who has an insatiable love for the dead? This is witchy as fuck. Welcome to witchy as fuck. I'm your host, Belladonna, and this, this is the Porum episode. Get ready to hear the story of Queen Esther, the baddest bitch in the Bible. A lot of you probably just went, what the fuck is Porum? It's my favorite Jewish holiday. This year it falls on March 16th to 17th, like most Jewish holidays, it goes from sundown to sundown. And that's based on the fixed date on the Hebrew calendar of the 14th of Adar. So they, the Hebrew calendar and the calendar really the rest of the world uses don't line up perfectly. Um, the Hebrew calendar did not change when, you know, our cal- the main calendar used worldwide came into play after the death of Christ when we went from B.C. to A.D. And the Hebrew calendar didn't change at that time um, because it didn't affect them. Like that wasn't a, you know, momentous moment for the Jewish people. So they kept the ancient Hebrew calendar, and that's what's used today, still to this day, for holidays. So the 14th of Adar is going to line up usually around, right around March 16th or 17th, but depending on like leap years and things like that, it may end up on a slightly different day. Now, the reason why it falls on the 14th of Adar is that it's the day that follows the end of the Purim story. So that moment where the Jewish people gain their freedom from Persia, the 14th of Adar is the next day. And that's why we celebrated on that day. What is the Purim story? It's the story of Queen Esther, who, like I said before, is the baddest bitch in the Bible. And the book of Esther is where you're going to find this story. Now, that's one of the only two books in the Bible that's named after a woman, the other being the Book of Ruth. And that in itself just makes it awesome. Like, it's it's a very feminist story, and the fact that a book was named after a woman, a book of the Bible was named after a woman, says a lot about her importance in the story and her importance overall um, to the history of the Jewish people because it's not often that a woman gets a book named after her. As you can see, there's 66 books and only two named after women. Now, the story of the Book of Esther is the story of the Jewish people gaining their freedom in ancient Persia. It's a story of like romance, mystery, intrigue. It has every element to just an exciting tale. 
Um, and I think that's what makes it such a interesting holiday and interesting book of the Bible. Now, why is this my favorite holiday? That's an easy one. It's fun. There's not a lot of Jewish holidays that are like really celebratory and fun. We like to like remember things. A lot of our holidays have kind of a somber atmosphere. Hanukkah really only is so like celebratory and happy because it falls near Christmas time usually and Americans wanted to get in that festive, American Jews wanted to get in that festive spirit also. And that's why Hanukkah became more of a celebratory holiday um, than it ever initially was. So while a lot of our holidays are about remembering things or atonement or just, or, or more somber, that's really the best word I can think of for it. Purim is just plain exciting and happy and celebratory and fun. I remember as a kid with Hebrew school, there'd always be like a carnival at the shul for Purim and you wear costumes. That's like very traditional way to celebrate is getting dressed up in costumes. So when I was really young, I called it Jewish Halloween, even though there's nothing else in common except for the costumes, maybe some candy. I don't know. I specifically remember one time at the carnival at my Hebrew school doing the thing where you use a uh you shave shaving cream off of a balloon and like you'd win prizes so there could have been some candy involved um college was also always really fun for porn I went to University of Central Florida and they have the second largest Jewish population um Jewish student population in the U.S. and I belonged to both Hillel and Chabad so there was always something going on and the porn party was one of the like big events of the year. It was usually at a nightclub and like we throw down. Um, so it's just a fun holiday. It's a exciting story, a happy and joyous atmosphere, and it's a reason to celebrate. And that's really the perfect recipe for a great holiday. And now before I get into like the down and dirty of why I think the book of Esther is one of the most important and influential books of the Bible. You know what we always have to do first, and that is our card of the day. You know what time it is. It's time for our tarot card of the episode. And let's see what the cards have for us today. Ooh, strength. That is kind of perfect for this episode because it fits in with the theme of the story of the book of Esther so damn well. Um, It's the strength of all the women in the story that really carry it through. Um, We want to look at the story of, of Queen Esther and the Purim story through a very feminist lens. And that comes from the strength of all the women in the story. And it's not just Esther, because it's Queen Vashti also. I mean, Queen Vashti is the first feminist of of the Bible. She stands up to King Xerxes and tells him no, that she's not going to put on some show for him and his friends and be treated like some object. She stands strong in 
herself and, and in her morals. And that is important to the entire progression of the story. And then there's Queen Esther's strength. There's strength when she's afraid, when she has to fear for her life under Haman's decree. There's the strength she shows in telling the king that she's Jewish and standing up for her people. And then finally, there's the strength of the Jewish people in the story that when given the opportunity and the ability to fight back against those that are trying to kill them, they do so and they win the battle. So strength is such a big theme in this story and it's the perfect card to come out for this. And aside from it being just, you know, very well matching with the the story of this episode, it's also applicable to all of us as a collective card. Right now, you know, the world's going through a whole bunch of just craziness and standing strong in ourselves is what's going to get us through as individuals. And I'm not talking about physical strength here. I'm talking about that emotional strength and that spiritual strength. It's what's inside of you. It's the strength you have to be you and to let who you truly are, you know, shine through that gets you through the tough times. So just like Esther had to be strong and wait until the right moment to act, um, we all have to be strong right now and, you know, build up that strength and hold on to that strength while we wait for the tides to turn in our favor. And with that, let's talk a little more about Purim. Before getting into the story of Purim itself, I wanted to discuss some other important aspects of the Book of Esther. Aside from it just being a great story, there's so many things about how it was written, when it was written, um, and just other pieces of the puzzle that make it such an interesting and important piece of religious literature. The first thing really is that, like I mentioned earlier, it is only one of two books of the Bible named after a woman. There's Esther and Ruth. And that's important because you'll notice, I'm sure you've noticed, that organized religions, especially of the Abrahamic kind, don't really like to give women credit. Um, Everything's, you know, it's very male-centric, most stories. And the story in the Book of Esther is a very feminist story. And it doesn't just involve one powerful female character. Um, Queen Vashti is in the story before Queen Esther. And although she plays a small role, it is a very, very important role. And she is like Queen Vashti is just the epitome of, of, of feminism. She puts her life on the line so that way she does not have to go against her feminist beliefs. And Queen Esther is a different kind of feminist. And it's, from my perspective, Vashti and Esther represent like two feminine arch- archetypes. Um, we have that like, you know, active feminist in Vashti. And then you have the like, 
undercover feminist in Esther who uses her, you know, womanly skills uh, to get shit done. So there are two very powerful female characters in one story, and they're powerful for different reasons. And really, aside from Mordecai, the men in this story are very easily manipulated. So it's just a testament to female empowerment and one of the few instances of strong feminism in the Bible that, and it's it's that f- feminism and it's because of the women in the story that God's goals are reached. And that's something else that's very important here. The book of Esther is the only book in the Bible that does not mention God by name. There is no mention whatsoever of God in this book. And that has a very strong lesson to it. It's showing us that God's present even when we can't see him, even when it doesn't seem like he's there. In like the worst of times when things seem to be horrible and, you know, using this story, for example, your people are all about to be executed, your culture destroyed, your family all killed, and it doesn't seem like he's around. But one of the lessons here is that God is still around in those instances. And even though it may not seem like he's pulling strings and making things happen, he is. The only reason why Esther finds herself in a place where she can save her people and save her family is because God put her there. It's a big statement on fate and destiny and having a pre-planned path. And I think that has really big implications to it. Um, it it's This book is downright telling us that our path is planned. We're put where we're supposed to be. Um, it's a really big, like, everything happens for a reason message, which normally um, I hate that saying everything happens for a reason. But that really is the message here, that whatever happens in life is happening at the will of God. There's also some major historical context to the book of Esther, which is not something you find as often um, in other books of the Bible. So this is, it's a, it's a secular story. It's not a religious story. It's not a story about their faith or about their religion. Yes, that plays, you know, a role, but it is a secular story about the government executing the Jewish people that lived in Persia. This timeline-wise, it takes place right after the first Jewish diaspora, which is something else that this story is. It's a great example of the impacts of the diasporas. So that really super fun word to say means exile. And this would have been the first diaspora. It was after the after Israel was invaded 
and the first temple was destroyed and the Jews were exiled and they all went to Babylon. And then the Babylonians lost all their land when the Persians came in and the Persians took over and the Persians had everything in the area at that point. And the Persians basically said, Jewish people, Jewish people, you can go back to your homeland. But then some chose to stay in Persia. They have, they've, they've been there for a while. They've lived in that culture. That was their home. That's their family. That's where their life was. And they didn't want to leave. So they stayed there and it created a Jewish population in Persia. And that's exactly what happens after with all the Jewish diasporas. So, you know, the exiles that sent Jewish people to living in Europe that basically created what we call Ashkenazi Jews, um, they, you know, they had a chance to go back to Israel, but they stayed because they've already created a culture and created a home there. Um, same thing with the Sephardic Jews. They find this home in in Spain. They've left Israel and they settle down, you know, in the Iberian Peninsula. Um, Russian Judaism is another diaspora. So there's all these different ones and that's how Judaism has spread to become, even though it's an ethno-religion, there's smaller cultural cultures within it. Um, like the Ashkenazi Jews, Sephardic Jews, to this day, we still would even have Iranian Jews, which would be a descendants of these Persian Jews. So there's a big historical context that comes into play. And just to put it in, you know, a broader context, the king in this story is Xerxes, who's a very popular Persian king. He, you know, movies, TV, he's kind of the Persian king used for everything when when you think kings of Persia um in the in the actual in the Torah and in well actually this wouldn't be in the Torah I think this is in the the Megillah yes it's in the it's in the Megillah but either way in the Bible um it's king I'm probably going to butcher this because my Hebrew was awful king Ahasuerus but that's Hebrew Xerxes is Greek. Ahasuerus is just the Hebrew word or name that for Xerxes. So that kind of puts it into context with everything else that people have learned about Persia. So this story is going on while Xerxes is king. One last thing I want to touch on before getting into the story itself, and this kind of goes back to all the the diaspora and the different cultures. Sephardic Jews came about because of the because of exiles, and you know they've kind of created their own culture within the you know ethno religion of Judaism, and they've actually made Esther into a saint, um, and that's something that I find very interesting because when I think of saints, I think Catholic. Um, and things that have happened after, after, um, to gain saintship, you have to have died after Jesus. So the fact that something that happened like 400 something years before that, um, this was, this all happened around like 400 something BC. 
um, it's just very interesting that she was such a powerful figure that in Sephardic Judaism, she is regarded to as a saint. And there is an even larger celebration. Um, they include the more ancient festivals of the Feast of Esther. And it's actually something that upon learning, I have become very, very interested in because I do think she is such a powerful being. And I love the idea of her as a saint. Um, so that was actually something that I learned this year um, when I was you know, doing some reading up about Purim and something that I do plan on exploring a lot further. Let's get into the story. Now let's go back to ancient Persia. About 50 years after the first destruction of the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, the Jewish people were banished and exiled from their land. And because of that, they made home in Persia. They were spread all around Persia, with many ending up in the Persian capital. This is the time of King Ahasuerus. I can never say this right. Ahasuerus, or as most people would recognize him, um, King Xerxes. Now, King Xerxes was a very powerful king and very secure in his throne, and he was very lavish. Um, he was known, that's probably what he was, one of the things he was most known for is how lavish he was. And he wanted to celebrate his power by holding the largest celebration the Persian people have ever seen, a 180-day-long party. And that wasn't enough. Following that 180-day-long party, he threw a seven-day smaller party for just the men of the capital city of Persia. So these are going to be your dignitaries, your high-ranking government officials, the rich, basically the 1%. And they were all invited to this smaller, more intimate gathering. Now, during that party, the king became, well, wasted. And he wanted his wife, Queen Vashti, to come and show off for the men of the capital. He wanted her to come dance. Vashti, being, you know, the first feminist character in the Bible, said fuck no. And that did not make the king happy. So he went back to his friends, you know, acted like everything was all fine, nothing was wrong, and went back to partying. The next day, he tried again. He wanted Vashti to come and dance. And once again, she was like, no, like, I'm sick of your shit. I'm not going to show off for your friends. And this went on and on, and Vashti never gave in to his request. So, as you can expect, Queen Vashti was executed. Now, that part of the story, I think, is often kind of skirted over as being not as important as, you know, only setting the stage for Esther. But it sets the tone for the very feminist lens that this story should be told through and should be viewed through. So after Queen Vashti was executed, King Xerxes was very lonely. Uh, he just he needed a new wife, 
And because he was king and, you know, wasn't going to go meet a woman the normal way, he decided to hold a beauty pageant where all the most beautiful women in the land could not enter but would be forced to participate in. Um, He sent his men out to find the women that were beautiful enough to be entered into the contest, and they were forced into that contest. And that included Esther. Esther was so beautiful that she was essentially kidnapped to be in this beauty pageant. She had no desire to be queen herself. Now, Esther's uncle, who raised her like he was her father, is Mordecai, the leader of the Jewish people in the Persian capital. And he sees this as an opportunity. I mean, what what way to better things for the Jewish people of Persia than to have a Jewish queen? So he tells Esther, don't let anyone find out you're Jewish. He won't marry you. Because even though the Jews were living in Persia, they weren't really seen as Persians. And they were really second-class citizens in that society. So he said, just let your beauty speak, you know. Just look good. Don't let him know you're Jewish. And Esther listened. And because she was the most beautiful woman in all of Persia, now that Vashti had been murdered, she became queen. And Mordecai now has his inn in the castle. Now, while all this is going on, we also have Haman, who is the prime minister of Persia, very, very close to the king. We have him all along plotting against the Jewish people. He was known to wear idols around his neck. Um, He was, you know, very religious in Persian religion, whereas the Jewish people followed their own religion. And Haman didn't like that. He wanted everyone to agree with him. So, Haman was making, were requiring everyone to bow to him when he would come, come in front of them. Mordecai was not feeling that. Uh, Jewish people do not bow to anyone but God. It's considered, you know, worshiping a false idol. So Mordecai would not bow. And this continuously, continuously pissed off Haman. So Haman now issued, uh, had the king issue a decree. Mordecai still wouldn't follow that. And he resolved to take revenge against all the Jewish people, just because Mordecai. So he threw lots to determine the day that he would carry out his plan to exterminate the Jewish people of Persia, and that fell on the thir- fell on the thirteenth day of Adar. Now Haman went to King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes, and offered him silver in exchange. Um, for permission to carry out his plan of exterminating the Jews of Persia. And the king already wasn't the biggest fan of the Jewish people, so he was like, nah, keep your money, kill them all. So Haman sent out a decree or a proclamation to everyone saying, 
everyone has permission to kill all the Jewish people on the day after the 13th of Adar. While this is going on, Mordecai is getting closer and closer to the king. He manages to overhear a discussion about an assassination plot um, by two of the higher-ups in the king's court. And he went to the king and said, listen, your two guys right there, they're, they're going to try to kill you. So the king was like, oh my god, thank you so much for telling me um, I'm going to kill them and you're, you're cool. Um, you can be like an advisor now. So Mordecai has now gained this position of trust with the king. When word of Haman's decree went out, he knew that this was the time to use the trust that the king has put in him and Esther's, you know, marriage to the king to good use. He sent a message to to Esther and told her, you need to come out with the truth. It's time to tell him you're Jewish and to spare your people. Now, she knew that she had to do it, but she also knew that she could not summon the king. The king had to summon her. And it had been a little while since the king summoned her, so she had to figure out a way to get his attention. So, she told Mordecai, listen, everyone needs to fast. All the Jews need to fast so we can get into God's good graces. So, Esther, which actually, because like we said, God is not mentioned directly in this book. Um, they just, you know, we need to fast, we need to pray. So, all the Jewish people followed Mordecai and they fasted and prayed for three days. There was 22,000 Jewish people in the capital that participated in the fast and prayer. So after the fasting, Esther was like, okay, this is time. And she put on her super fancy clothes and she went into the king's chambers without, without him requesting her, which was a big, big no. Um, and he was like, what do you need? Like, what are you doing here without me? And she had a nice cover story. She says, I want to invite, I want us to have a dinner and I'm going to prepare it. And Haman is going to be our guest of honor. And the king was like, you know what? That would be a very, that's a good idea. Let's do it. So they had the feast. And during the feast, the king asked her again, you know, is there anything else you want? And she responded, yeah, I want to have another feast. And then I'm going to tell you something important. But this feast is going to be to honor Haman. And oh, Haman was like, what? I'm getting honored. He was excited. He had no idea anything weird was going on. And the king was like, okay, yeah, we'll do, we'll party again. King liked to party. He'll party again. And the next day, or I guess that night, actually not the next day, because it was between the parties. So the next, that night, Haman goes home. And while he's so excited about being honored, he's in the back of his mind is like, fuck Mordecai. 
Like, I hate that dude. So he got ready and started hanging gallows um, that he could kill Mordecai on as soon as the 13th of Adar passed and the killing began. So that night, the king, for some reason, just could not fall asleep tossing and turning and just couldn't get to sleep and he was like oh you know what we'll always we'll pass the time well I'm gonna read down my royal chronicles which is like every good thing that he's ever done and ever happened to him um just written down so he's like I'm gonna read about my life because you know he wasn't conceited at all and he read about the time that Mordecai saved his life and realized that he never rewarded Mordecai. And he was wondering, you know, what what can I do to reward him? And at that same moment, Haman walks into the courtyard because he wanted to ask the king for specific permission to hang Mordecai. Before he could ask that, though, the king asked him, what what do you think I should do to honor someone that I think needs to be honored? And, you know, Haman was like, of course he's talking about me, so I might as well go big or go home. He said, royal garments and a royal heart horse. Let him dress like a noble and ride the horse through the streets, proclaiming his honor. And the king was like, yeah, I like this. And he sent Haman off to go get Mordecai so he could be honored. And Mordecai was like, what the fuck just happened? That did not, did not go as planned. And then the next day comes and it's time for the next feast. At the end of the meal, King Ahasuerus asks Esther, what is it that you want to ask me? And she says, if it pleases you, my king, let me keep my life and the life of my people. And the king's like, what? What's going on? And that's when she explains she is Jewish and that Haman's order would kill her and her family and all of her people. And the king was like, um, nah. Like, dude, that's not going to happen. I'm not going to let him kill you. You're my wife and you're super hot. So the king listened to his wife, Esther, and said, listen, Haman, we're going we're gonna to execute you instead. And those gallows that Haman built for Mordecai, guess who they were used to hang? That's right, Haman. And all of Haman's estate was given to Esther and Mordecai and Mordecai was appointed the prom, prime minister, um, which was the seat that Haman had had um, sat in, or, or had, yeah, that was his seat in the government, and now it was Mordecai's. But the problem is that in Persian law, once a decree is given by the king, it can't be undone. So this decree to execute all the Jews of the kingdom was still in place. But the king allowed a decree that that countered it, that allowed them, that allowed the Jewish people permission to defend themselves. 
against their enemies. So while people were still allowed to be out there, you know, trying to kill the Jews, the Jews were allowed to defend themselves. And there was a very large war or battle, not war, it was just one battle, a battle that started on the 13th of Vidar because the Jews were like, well, everyone was arming up to kill us. We might as well kill all them instead. So they killed the the Persians that were, you know, planning on killing them. I feel like it's like the purge, like, and then like reversed. <laughs> um, but this was a big celebration for the Jewish people. Um, among the dead were Haman's, all of Haman's sons, his whole family. Um, so the Jews won the battle. They had high seats in government in Persia at this point. And that is now celebrated as Purim, the most joyous holiday that we celebrate as Jewish people. And that, which is, is the story of the baddest bitch in the Bible, Queen Esther. As always, stay magical as fuck. The Witchiest Fuck Podcast is a Patreon-funded podcast. Patreon exclusives include blog posts, behind-the-scenes videos, and monthly tarot readings. Head over to the Witchy AF Patreon for membership details.